Hello, everybody. This is Bill Knauer, and you're listening to Author to Author, where we talk about writing and life. Because what it takes to write the book you want to write is also what it takes to lead the life you want to lead. It's true. It's true. Author to Author is brought to you by Author Magazine, the premier writing magazine on the Internet, featuring articles on writing, the writing life. It's got my Thrice Weekly blog there, where I write about all things writing, creativity, spiritual, the whole gamut. It's up there. It's free. Monday, Wednesday, Friday, always a blog by yours truly. Also, my video interviews with best-selling and award-winning authors across the genres. Dory Hillestad Butler, children's book author. Got a conversation with her up there right now. You can find it all at authormagazine.org. And that magazine and this podcast are funded by the fabulous Pacific Northwest Writers Association, supporting writers from Penda Publications since 1955. Love the PNWA. I'm going to be teaching some classes there over the winter if you're a local yokel here in the Northwest. And I'll be teaching a four or five-week personal essay. I love the personal essay. That's my jam. I'm going to be teaching a class about that. Also, a fearless writing, one-day fearless writing workshop. They'll be teaching other classes, too, on craft of writing. You know, and if you want to join the PNWA but you don't live in the Northwest, it's okay because there's still benefits to it because every month they hold a meeting. And if you can't make the meeting, if you are out of town or if you live in Boston or Timbuktu, it doesn't matter. You can listen to it on the Internet. Yes, the magic of the Internet. We upload it there. It goes live, and so you can check it all out. It's all there. It's all there. Check it out, PNWA. Dot org. You can learn all about it at pnwa.org. Uh, I should say, a quick mention, not much going on with me right now that you would be interested to know about, although I am a part of something pretty cool that's happening on Facebook. The uh, If you're one of the you know, three billion people who's a member of Facebook, uh, the, uh, the Writer's Digest, the author, oh crap, what's it called? Authors Exchange, Writers Digest Author Exchange. That's what it's called. It's a group on Facebook, and I'm a part of it, and all and a great many of the writers who write books for Writers Digest are on it too. And every week we have a different author hosting it. I just hosted it a few weeks ago. I'll be hosting it again in January, I think. And and five, six days a week, those authors, they put on, sometimes they do live um uh, they do Facebook Live events, or I do. I post a lot of videos of me talking about stuff, or they post articles, or they do. They get conversations going. It's a great support, free for writers who uh, want to talk to other writers. It's growing fast. Anyone can join. You have to ask to join, but if you're a writer, they'll let you join. It's just that kind of a community. So check it out. Writers Digest Authors Exchange. As we speak, someone's Carrie Flanagan is talking about what it takes to live there on Facebook, talking about what it takes to write for the for magazines, if you're into that sort of thing. Okay, so, oh, today we got ourselves not just an author, an historian, James R. Hansen. Yes, he is the uh, a professor emeritus of history, of history at Auburn University. Go Tigers! A former historian for NASA, Hansen is uh, the author of 12 books on the history of aerospace and a two-time nominee for the Pulitzer Prize in history. In fact, his 1995 book, Space Flight Revolution, was nominated for the Pulitzer Prize by the National Aeronautics and Space Administration, which is the only time NASA has ever nominated a book for the prize. That's right. He also serves as a co-producer for the major motion picture, First Man, out in theaters now, which was based on his New York Times bestselling biography 
of Neil Armstrong. Jim, welcome to the show. Thank you, William. It's a pleasure to be talking to you. Well, it's great to have you on. Uh, You know, it's funny when I think of historians, I think of history, I think of... Are you usually not considered very funny. (laughs) What's that? (laughs) You're not considered very funny? You're considered very funny. Yeah. Funny. No. Not usually. Not usually considered very funny. No. But I think of... uh, I was going to say, I think about like Caesar and his legions and Napoleon and his cannons and Rommel and his tanks, but I don't think of space. But really, you can be the history. So what came first, your love of history or your love of aerospace? Or were they simultaneous? Well, I think my love of history generally uh, and my love of reading as a boy, I tended to read a lot of of historical uh, works for written for children, you know, kind of you were there kinds oh, of books. You yeah, were there yeah. at the fall of Constantinople. You were there, you know, at the battle of Gettysburg. And so I love to read about history, um, juvenile books about history when I was seven, eight, nine years old. And, and so it was really reading, which then flowed into an interest in writing and then, And then history just, I mean, it was always the storytelling aspects of it were, you know, uh, always central to what I was interested in. Right. And, but so you were, so that's interesting. So as a kid and by, you know, what's interesting is that eight or I would say nine years old, I've done a lot of these interviews and I Mm -hmm. casually I've I've done a poll of all the writers, all the different varieties, all kinds, poets, playwrights, novelists, you know, whatever, uh, Nine is kind of the average age when people look up and realize that they're interested in writing if writing is what they want to do. And it sounds like that's sort of the same age when you started realizing your interest. Like that's when it sort of hits you, your interest, at least in in the narrative of the past. Yeah, I think so. And, and, but I, I always, I met in my classes with college students, you know, I, I always, you know, and graduate students in talking about writing, I always told them how, how fundamental and, and, and absolutely foundational avid reading is. I mean, I don't yeah. think you can become a writer unless you're really an avid, passionate reader, you know, where you actually see good writing and start to understand it and elements of it, even if it's not, you know, as a, as a child, you're not thinking of it in, in terms of structure and so forth, but you are getting a feel for language and storytelling methods. And so, yeah, for me, the reading and writing just went in hand and, and the yeah. storytelling, I think in terms of studying things in school, history was the, you know, was the one thing where storytelling was essential, you know, along with my English classes where I was reading, I love to read novels and so forth. So that kind of all gelled, you know, in my early adolescence. Yeah, you know, it strikes me. I, I used to write fiction. I don't anymore. I write personal nonfiction. So I write about myself, Jim. I write about what I go through or things that I'm interested in. I write memoir, personal essay, spiritual stuff, this kind of stuff. But what's interesting mm-hmm. is it strikes me that the memoirist, in the broadest terms, that's sort of what I am, uh, and the historian have the same challenge somewhat, which is that – So, and I tell this to my students when I teach it all the time, which is, you, well, for me as a – personal narrator, I can't be overly burdened by the truth, meaning I have to leave out so much stuff in order to tell a story. There's no way I can tell the story that I want to tell if I told you everything. It would be boring and it wouldn't be a story. But even an historian like yourself, who wants to tell as much, I mean, obviously you are bound by the facts, but you still have to tell a story. You still have to make, Mm -hmm. 
a narrative out of it. And you're still leaving stuff out, I assume, when you when you structure your, your narrative. Yeah, either you or your editor is. <laughs> well, uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and I've tended, I mean, I guess this is pleading guilty to something, but I've tended to write very long books. I mean, my, my right. Armstrong biography was in its original edition about 700 pages. Holy and I can't crap. even... What? Yeah, yeah. And that, of course, <laughs> that includes footnotes, footnotes, bibliography, right. and all of right. the assorted stuff. But but it would have been, you know, without a good editor, I would have been, you know, much more ungainly even than that. And I've tended to write very long books because, I mean, I, there aren't too many details that don't fascinate me. You know, and I, ah. I find reasons to, I find reasons to include them. And I think, you know, some of the reviewers of my books over the years have suggested, you know, maybe we could have done with a little less detail about Neil Armstrong's <laughs> grandparents, you know. But for me, it's, and, it, and it's not just, okay, I, 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 you know, I remember researching and how much effort it took to actually learn this information. And like, right. well, I'm going to use it by God one way or the other. Uh, but, it's, right. you know, it's, it's really isn't that so much. It's just I find the whole I find the whole, you know, there's not much about um, about a historical narrative that I don't find interesting. And, of course, you know, I'm maybe overstating it a bit because, yeah, you've got to be you can't include everything. But no. uh, I really find, you know, kind of a pointillist uh, uh, approach uh, in terms of the way I write. I mean, there's I just sort of every little dot adds up to something, I think. Ooh. I like that point. I've never heard it described that way. I like it. Pointless. You know, it's a funny thing. The first time I had a vision for how I wanted to tell certain kinds of story, I literally saw it as broad brushstrokes, as big, broad uh-huh. brushstrokes. So, yeah, it's interesting. But I think you're right. Pointless. That would make sense for historians because the facts are part of the fun of it. Uh, but we're jumping now to the somewhat to to the movie part. But I, I, I wonder what it's like when you watch the film because of course the filmmakers really can't show everything they've got to do something <laughs> you are forced to in you know two hours or how long did first man run is it over two hours two two hours 18 minutes okay so it's one of the longer ones but still they have to yeah. leave out gobs of stuff and take some liberties and so on did was it did you have to like kind of like bite on a bullet to watch it or did you make <laughs> peace with the nature of filmmaking when you helped produce that well, I I eventually made a piece with it, but I can tell you, you know, because I reviewed every Josh Singer, uh, you know, had just come off. He was the screenwriter for First uh-huh. Man, and he had just come off winning an Oscar for the Academy Award for uh, Spotlight, for writing Spotlight. And then he moves into oh. writing First Man. And so Josh sends me a preliminary outline, and this is like three years ago. And what do I send him back? Now, this is preliminary outline. He's still trying to figure out what director Damien Chazelle really, you know, what he wants and and to sort of just sort of start to put some structure to the vision that Chazelle has for the movie. So I get this preliminary outline, and I send him back 70 single-space pages of comments. Oh, Jesus. Uh, and, right. you know, I, and you know, he, I'm glad you weren't in the room when he got that. <laughs> oh, I know. He actually, I don't think he talked to me for about three months. Uh, and I got a call. I got a call from Los Angeles from one of the, well, who, a young man who turned out to be the executive producer on the film. And he said, Jim, what are you doing? We would never <laughs> dare send a writer or something like that. And especially right. someone who's just come off the Academy Award. Right. But, you know, right. And, and I, I, so I learned from that. I mean, it wasn't the right time, 
But yeah. over, you know, and as we moved along, and then I was there on set for almost every, you know, every day of the shoot, and it was exciting, but it was pretty stressful because you know I felt such a strong responsibility to Neil Armstrong, yeah. and and to the his, and you know this is my first time where I was in that situation, and so you know I I probably you know there was one time when I think one of the producers came over to me and said you know Jim sometimes you know they don't even let book authors on the set. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, for good reason to tell me something yeah yeah yeah. so i i learned i backed off a bit but i sort of they made a peace with me because they wanted me there damien wanted me there ryan wanted me there and so i just told them look i'm going to give you everything i got you know take it or leave it and in the end josh singer told me that my batting average uh in terms of you know having helpful comments was about 350 you know, uh, that's not bad. Batting average. That's not bad, pretty bad, good. Bad You're over the Mendoza yeah. line by a while. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's good. right. By quite a bit. Yeah. So, well, you know, it's interesting in that because I, I, I tried my hand at screenwriting a little bit. I liked it. Okay. I'd come from theater and the thing about screenwriting, which was difficult for, so I prose is really my natural, uh, mm-hmm. habitat. But, um, the thing about screenwriting is it's really a visual medium film is a visual medium and, and right. so much gets accomplished through the visual that and it's really not meant to be language driven like theater and for sure like books and mm-hmm. so it's just a whole different way of thinking about story i mean the the actor and the and the cinematographer and just the choices they make can do so much that it takes people like you and me with words you know paragraphs but they can do it in one raised eyebrow or one cut so it's just a whole different way of looking at storytelling you know yeah, absolutely. And I, I, you know, also one thing that I did was a mistake, probably a mistake in retrospect, is that, especially with Armstrong, I mean, I spent 55 hours of tape recorded interview time with Neil, I, you know, and I spent sure. a lot more time with him than that. And, and, you know, his sister, his brother, fellow astronauts, kids went to school with. So I, I, you know, I got a pretty good sense for who he was. And there were times when I was looking at the screenplay as it was evolving and I would see dialogue that I thought, yeah, this just isn't Neil or that's not really right. appropriate to Neil. But the last thing in the world that the screenwriter wanted me to do was to suggest alternative dialogue. You know, that was like yeah. a no, yeah. <laughs> no, no, that, that was not going to be a good idea. Yeah, I didn't know how else to do it, though, because just to say, well, that dialogue's not right. I mean, how do I help it if, unless I give some suggestion yeah. of, of an alternative? So that was we had a lot of different issues to work out. And Josh and I, I think, did it very successfully to the point where we now have a book out that Titan published about a month ago that is the annotated script. And so the oh, final cool. script of the movie is there on the left-hand side of the pages of the book. And on the right-hand side of the pages of the book is a running conversation between Josh and myself about what's on the left-hand side page, you know, what, right. what liberties were taken and why and what disagreements we had about this or that and why. It's a very unique book, and it's been getting some really interesting reviews from the film community because I'm not sure that you – know, I've seen – and you've probably seen scripts published as books – but sure. not with this kind of running conversation no. between the screenwriter and the author on which the work is has been adapted. So it's, it's no. kind of an interesting insight into how this works. That's so cool. Well, so let me ask. I'm going to back up a little bit. So you loved history. Uh, you read it. You were, it was fascinating to you. But uh, so, but why? So what led you to, to the history of aerospace? Uh, which you know, interestingly. 
is not very old. I mean, history is usually about dead people, uh, by and large, and aerospace is still... In fact, my father-in-law was part of the team of people who built, were working on the, the rockets, you know, and so he's still around. And so um, how does it, how, what drew you to want to do the history of, to focus on the history of aerospace? Well, there's, part of it seems sensible and reasonable and logical, and then another part of it's just total chaos theory. I mean, I did grow up. <laughs> In the in the sixties, uh, I was a boy in the early sixties, and I remember, you know, they would take us down into the gymnasium and have our self take our shoes off and watch the launches of the Mercury flights and so forth. Wow! And so yeah. I mean, and you know, and so I was, you know, I was you know, through my junior and senior year of high school when Apollo eleven landed, and and you know, I paid a lot of attention to that, but I wasn't like an airplane model builder and a nerd. Right. And I mean, it was just sort of it was part of it was part of you know of the American experience in the 1960s. I was interested in everything else going on in the 1960s too around me. But see, what happened was I you know I go to graduate school and I'm studying history, but I'm not really I'm not focused on anything related to aerospace. I'm interested in the history of science, you know, Copernicus oh, right. and Galileo and, right. and, and things like that. And so when I get out with my degree in 1981 with my PhD, uh, I get this phone call from the NASA history office wanting me to write a book for them. And I didn't even know there was a NASA history office and I hadn't done anything <laughs> related to history of flight, but you know, it, it's one of those deals where some, you know, uh, somebody knew some, knew some, knew my advisor, knew I was on the job market, you know, knew right. I had some background that maybe could qualify me to write a book about in the early years of, of the history of flight in America. And so right. the door opened for me, and I went through the door, and it just ramified from there. You know, so, wow. I mean, I could have been studying, you know, I could have been studying 16th century Danish astronomy, you know, for the rest of my life if if uh, that hadn't happened. And it just sort of, you know, I, I'm a strong believer in contingency and and chaos that you know that, right. that these things are not all planned out in advance they all have sort of happened and you know you could if you went on this through this door instead of that one your whole life's different so but i went through you know I, it was an opportunity for me because once i did this first book for nasa all of a sudden I found myself people considering me, you know, I was getting invited to the Air and Space Museum in Washington. You're an expert. You're the expert. Yeah, I became an expert. You yeah, became the overnight. expert. Yeah. yeah. Like, and, you know, as long as, as I, if I could keep fooling them about that, that was fine, you know. So, <laughs> hey, you know, man, you're a PhD. Just ended up, you yeah, know, that's, right. that's all you need. You got a so book, you're a PhD, you know, you're an expert. In, right. So it turns into a 30 some year career where I'm, you know, I'm doing more and more stuff yeah. related to the history of flight, both aviation and space. That, so, you know, it's so cool. You know, one of the hardest lessons I've had to learn in my life, Jim, is that my plans are useless. That all the planning I've done <laughs> has, has come to nothing and nothing at all. But the successes <laughs> I've had personally, romantically, professionally have been things that just I that things came up and I followed them. But this has been the I've been so into planning things and they just never work ever. And I know so many people who tell me your story of like, well, I just it, it was the thing to do. And so I did it. And, I, and here I am 30 years later. 
uh, I just think it's the way it goes. I think it's the way it goes. Yeah, and it makes you it know? hard, you know, as when I was teaching students both at the undergraduate and graduate level, it made it kind of challenging as to what the right message was. But what I told them <laughs> was, you know, I didn't tell them no sense in planning. I think, you know, there must be some sense in planning. Yeah, but, you know, if you if you have good foundations, you know, if you if you if you like if you read, if you if you are passionate about subjects, you know, if you're, you know, just get good foundation academically, educationally, intellectually, and then be ready to adapt. You know, when circumstances change and opportunities arise for you, you know, if you've got that good foundation, you know, and, and you, then you can take advantage of it, you know. But, well, yeah, you're right. If and, you have a rigid plan, you know, that's almost never, never going to work. It's hopeless. But, but I will say this. Another thing I've learned that is very important is you do have to recognize this is something every writer has to deal with because, you know, I love to write, but I can't write just any old thing. I've got to lay my attention on something that is like authentically interesting to me. And so, yes, this opportunity to write about space and aerospace came along, but it also must have interested you because if it didn't interest you, if, if the experience of thinking about it and researching it wasn't interesting uh, in and of itself, I don't think you would have had a whole career of it. It must have excited you on some level, it might have surprised you. But I think that's the other thing we have to learn, which is maybe don't plan, but do recognize when a path lights up, you know? Yeah, absolutely. When, and, and it did. Yeah. And I think for me, and, and this is where I could, I could find the interest, I think, in anything historical, is that it's all, for me, it's all about people. Uh, you oh, know, when I, when yeah. I, my first book had to do with people that were essentially engineers and scientists that were trying to develop their, you know, aerodynamic thinking in the in the 20s and 30s and 40s. Uh, that was really what my first book was about. And I did it because I had lots of chance for oral history. I interviewed these people right. and I got and I, I was interested in what what made them creative. How did they solve problems? And so as long as I could make things people-oriented, and, and, and in history, what isn't really people-oriented? I mean, there are some topics and some historians who can probably leave individuals out you know, and speak in right. terms of collective. But for me, it's always – my books have always been some form of biography or collective biography, even if, it's, even if the subject matter is sort of institutional or, or organizational right. in nature. And I think that's why, ultimately, I was led to by, to doing real biography. Well, you know, it's interesting. I was just thinking that, like, uh, you know, space, they call it the final, someone called it the final frontier once. But, of <laughs> course, it, but in many ways, these are adventurers, explorers. And it's kind of like you're writing biographies of, like, in real time of, like, Marco Polo or Columbus or... And I've now run out of seafaring explorers that I know, but Ulysses. Let's go to Gama. <laughs> okay, there you go. But that's really kind of what you're. I mean, this is the new. These are the new adventurers, both the scientists who made it possible, and the, the the men and women who climbed into those ships to take these kind of dangerous journeys. I mean, if things go haywire up there, you're done. And so uh, you are getting a chance to to document this in real time as it's really happening or shortly after it happened. And that's pretty cool. Yeah. And Armstrong was an especially interesting subject because besides having this incredible life story to tell, I mean, it right. was instantly clear to me that it was also, I can, it was really also an iconography. 
because Neil becomes a global uh, icon the moment he steps right. out onto the sea of tranquility. And that has yeah. all kinds of ramifications, not only on him personally in terms of what the rest of his life was going to be like, but it had really important implications for storytelling. Because there were so much, as I as I got more and more into my research for the book, I learned that there was a lot of stories about Armstrong that were being told about him, which were you know not just wildly exaggerated, but some of them were total fabrications. Because oh, people, interesting. People wanted to be part of the story, and so they made up things that connected them to the story, or they projected their meanings. You know what they thought. So yeah. He was kind of a private person and didn't fill up his own vessel there you know terribly much people when then sort of step in and project their meanings onto him or into him and so and i had to sort that out it wasn't just sorting out you know facts from fiction it was really making sense of the fiction what does the what does the fiction tell us about ourselves about our society our culture that we want this guy to mean this and mean that uh and so that one made that's what made his story uh especially fascinating for me and i hope for readers i I think you're right it hadn't occurred to me but of course i mean he's the first he'll there'll never be another who's the first to put his boot on that foreign on that very foreign soil and uh and we do this you know with people like the beatles or with kings or whoever and of course history is made of icons i mean so much of what the characters of history are just are incredibly reduced Fictions, really, aren't they? It's hard to get the sense of who the person actually was. How can you? The lens of history is so far. You know, it's really like looking at someone through a telescope on the other side of the planet. But so you were trying to sift through, and you and you must have come with your own fictions to some degree, yeah, your own preconceived notions a little bit. A yeah, little bit. absolutely, absolutely. And you know, one thing that I've gotten really interested in in thinking about and, and lecturing about. Um, is the whole idea of a, a master narrative, a meta narrative that, and and there's meta narratives that cover almost every topic of history. But what sure. has been the meta narrative of of American space history and of the Apollo program history in particular? I mean, it's we've been fifty. It's been going to be fifty years since Apollo eleven, and there are certain ideas and concepts, and 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 the story has been controlled in a way. Um, you know, by these, uh, by this master narrative, and I think what we're uh, what we're trying to do, um, you know, is to, is to and we what we are doing now, and I think the film does this in kind of some brilliant ways, is challenge the master narrative because there are certain ideas in that master narrative, like the right stuff, and you know, the yeah. idea of there's all kinds of ideas of American triumphalism and the frontier thesis and and masculinity. Yeah you know, kinds of different things that are wrapped into the way we tell our stories about the Apollo program. And I think one of the interesting things about this film and that it comes through film, maybe even clearer than in any book at this point in time, is that the film really challenges the master narrative of the Apollo program. And I think there are people that find that extremely fresh and exciting and, and, and so forth. And then there are people you know, there are people that don't especially care for the movie because it's not what they expect. It doesn't. Right. It isn't the master. It isn't the master narrative. But you know, I think master narratives as a as a as a type are are interesting because usually there's institutional forces behind them. I mean, why 
why does a master narrative come to coalesce in a particular sort of way? You know, and in the case of the space program, you've got NASA behind it. You've got the military behind it. You've got, you know, early storytelling that's been basically PR driven behind it. And so all of this kind of coalesces into a into a consensus that this is the way the stories should be told. Um, and I think the Apollo 13 as a movie and the right stuff as a movie and the HBO miniseries from the earth to the moon, as much as I love all three of them, they really are part and parcel of this master narrative, which, you know, which I think needs to be challenged, you know, especially now yeah. 50 years later, we need to look back and see, and there are things to see in those stories, you know, in the, in the history that the master narrative has, has sort of ignored or pushed to the side. Right. Well, I see historians doing it now. Historians have finally started doing it with the old West what we call the old West. There was mm-hmm. all kinds of narratives about that. And that's finally begun to be challenged. And so you see, you're a part of that. You're a part of the change in the narrative. Good for you. Good for you. Freshen it up, make it relevant to what we're living today. Uh, because I do think that that narrative was constructed during, was a big part of what was happening in the sixties and seventies in particular, when this view of ourselves, that's interesting. Well, absolutely. Jim, Jim, you're an interesting guy. Uh, talking about an interesting subject, but unfortunately our time is nearly up. It's almost up. Uh, we were just discussing beforehand, you don't have a website, <laughs> so, but if people want to learn about you, they can do it on the Wikipedia. Uh, maybe someday you will have a website. At the moment, you don't, uh, but there's information. But your book's I'm very what, active okay. on I'm very on active where? on Facebook, Facebook and, I, and I do, okay, I do post a lot of professional stuff on Facebook, All right. um, and so that's a good way to see what I'm up to. And what is the name of the so what is the name of the book uh, the the screenplay book yep. the book where you come what's that called First Man the Annotated Script Okay just First Man okay and that's available now that's out in it bookstores It is it's available and All right, good, get good. it on Amazon or wherever but it's uh, it's well, really a cool uh, kind of great uh, Christmas uh, gift for gift the father looking at a movie right Great Christmas gift for your for your Absolutely. husband or father. Got lots, got, got a, and even for um, some uh, others, because there's lots of good photographs uh, from the studio photographer. Uh, so it's a beautifully oh, illustrated book. Lots of pictures beautiful. of Ryan Gosling's eyelashes. <laughs> oh, good. All right. Well, all right. I got one more question for you, Jim, before I let you go. And what I want you to okay. do is finish this sentence. If writing has taught you anything, it's taught you what? It's taught me humility, um, oh, because yeah. uh, it's uh, it's very hard to do. It takes every bit of your heart and soul and every bit of your brain to to try to get it done. And uh, so, and you know, every time I start a new project, I wonder, am I really up to this or not? <laughs> so you know, so I'd say it makes me pretty humble. That's awesome. Stay humble. All right, Jim. It was great talking to you. Congratulations on the book and the movie, and good luck with your next project. Thank you, William. I really appreciate talking to you. All right. Take it easy. Well, yeah, humility. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You got to be humble, people. Got to, got to, got to. I'm going to be back next week, my last show, before a little break I take around the Christmas time, uh, around the holiday season. Um, I'm going to be talking to Bo Amore. Son of Louis L'Amour. Yes, that's right. We're going to be talking about that icon of storytelling. Until then, 
Oh, I want to thank my producer, R.J. Jeffries. You're awesome, R.J. Uh, couldn't do this without you. Thanks to everyone out there. Take it easy, and I'll see you next week. Go do something you love. Guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.